All right, this morning we are getting back into Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to go ahead and turn there. But before we get into that passage, I'm going to introduce this message with what might be a slightly controversial statement, but I think I can back it up. Here's the statement. Overcomplicating something simple is highly entertaining. Overcomplicating something simple is highly entertaining. In fact, I think most of us really love a good complication. Now, how do I know, how do I know that? Among other proofs that I could point to in our culture, I'll simply point you to the fact that American Ninja Warrior has been on TV for 14 straight seasons and continues to get high ratings. And American Ninja Warrior is all about complication of entertainment. My youngest son, Jude, has always loved American Ninja Warrior, as most of my kids have. And he's actually taking Ninja Warrior classes at a local gym. And he loves all of the complex courses and navigating those every week. He's having a lot of fun with it. But it's nowhere near what the television show is. That television show, American Ninja Warrior, is actually about a very, very simple concept made highly complex. It's really just about getting from point A to point B, getting from the starting line to a red buzzer at the end. Simple concept. But it is the most ridiculously complex course imaginable. You can't just walk or run from point A to point B. You have to jump between angled platforms and run over rolling logs and swing from Tarzan ropes and arm climb the most ridiculously difficult monkey bars you could possibly imagine and climb up warped walls. It's crazy complex, but that's what makes it interesting. The more complex the course, the greater the sense of fulfillment for whoever wins, and the greater the entertainment value for the audience. If American Ninja Warrior were not complex, it would be boring. Like, really, really boring. For all the talk in our culture about simplifying things and decluttering life, one thing that we definitely don't want simplified is our entertainment. I don't know how many of you know who Marie Kondo is, but if Marie Kondo were to take over American Ninja Warrior, it would be kind of hilarious. Because Marie Kondo is all about getting rid of stuff in life that doesn't bring you joy. Getting rid of all of the clutter, all of the complexity. And so if Marie Kondo took over American Ninja Warrior, water hazards that would disqualify you would not bring her joy. Warped walls, no joy. Arm rings, no joy. All of it would get ditched, and at the end of the day, you would have a show where you would have a starting line and then a nice, smooth, flat, very clean course all the way to a red buzzer at the end, maybe complemented by a tasteful snake plant. All right? It would be a really simple course. But would it be entertaining? No, not at all. It wouldn't be interesting. And that's not just true of TV competitions. Our culture actually loves complexity in so many areas of life. Good food and good wine are described as having complex flavor profiles. That's what makes them good. Great art and great literature are very often described as having very complex characters and layers and themes. The greatest musicians who've ever lived, classical musicians from 400 years ago, modern musicians today, why are they considered great? Their compositions are rich and complex, and people study them and dig into them because of the complexity. We love complexity, 
And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that when it comes to religion, humans have always valued complexity in religion as well. Most world religions, sort of like a ninja warrior course, could be boiled down to just a point A to point B concept. Most world religions are about getting from point A, the beginning of life, to point B, the afterlife, in a good and healthy and fulfilling way. But in between points A and points B are all the obstacles, all the rules, the requirements, the regulations, the good works, the pilgrimages, the rituals, all of it necessary to qualify followers of that religion for favor with the deity of that religion or a good afterlife. And as we're going to study this morning, Christianity and the church are not immune to the overcomplication that we seem to be so fond of as humans. In chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, Paul finally addresses the underlying concern that had caused him to write this letter in the first place. There was something happening at this Colossian church that was overcomplicating Christianity. This first century church was being infiltrated by an attractive but very divisive philosophy that made Christianity more complex than it was supposed to be. It added extra philosophies and requirements to the Christian faith. Now, we don't know exactly what this particular teaching was. It's not named here, and it's apparently not one of those philosophies or heresies that gets a name when you study church history. And maybe that's a good thing, because it allows us to apply what was going on there more specifically to us, rather than looking specifically at what that exact heresy was. But this morning, as we learn a little bit about the philosophy that was infiltrating the Colossian church, I think you'll see some interesting, perhaps convicting, things that Paul says that parallel our own church life and our own spiritual lives. In our passage today, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23, Paul is going to make the case to the Colossian church and to each of us that despite all the captivating complexity that people try to add to Christianity, all we need is Jesus. He's all we need. We don't need all of the extra stuff. All we need is to believe in Jesus and to live in Jesus. Now, I never really liked math growing up, but I was always reasonably good at it. And this morning, I'm going to actually state the big idea of this passage as a math equation. And hopefully this is helpful. Christ plus nothing equals a life worth living. That's the big idea from this passage. Christ plus nothing is a life worth living. Now, usually on Sundays, I'm teaching back in kids' class. And when I'm teaching in kids, we do a lot of hand motions to help, people, to help little kids remember things. I have a theory that hand motions actually help a lot of people remember things. So I made up hand motions for this. And if nothing else, even if you think this is totally goofy, maybe you'll remember at least the big idea of this passage. Ready? Christ, nails and nails and hands, Christ plus nothing equals a life worth living. All right, ready? Christ plus nothing equals a life worth living. That's our big idea today. Now, how do we know 
that's Paul's main point in this letter, or in this part of the letter. Well, among other reasons, I believe that's his main point because of how often he points us back to being in or with Christ in this passage. Before we dive into Paul's main argument that Christ plus nothing equals a life worth living, look at how often he uses the phrases in or by or with Christ. And I think these are going to be up on screen so you can follow along. In verse 6, Paul says, walk in him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him. Verse 9, dwells bodily in Christ. Verse 10, filled by him. Verse 11, circumcised in him and the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, buried with him, raised with him. Verse 13, alive with him. Verse 15, triumphed over them in him. Verse 20, died with Christ. You get a pattern here? This connection to Jesus is supposed to be everything that we need. Through this passage, Paul is going to make two main points this morning that should hopefully convince us that Christ plus nothing equals a life worth living. And here's the two points. So if you like taking notes, you can write these down. In Christ, we have our foundation. And in Christ, we have our freedom. Let's look at that first one from verses 6 and 7. In Christ, we have our foundation. Remember, Paul is concerned that false teaching is infiltrating this little church at Colossae, and he doesn't want to see their faith shaken by all the confusion and complexity that we're going to learn about later in this chapter. And so he first seeks to ground them on a very simple, basic, but I think profound truth in verse 6. Read verse 6 with me. Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Receiving Christ Jesus as Lord means believing the gospel, becoming a Christian by faith in Jesus. And so what Paul is saying here is that, the, is that the same way that you started the Christian life, the same way you became a Christian, is the exact same way that you should continue living by faith in Jesus. And he says here that the way that you should continue living the Christian life is trusting or receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. And those three names there aren't accidental. I think sometimes we read all the different titles of Jesus that are given in the New Testament, and we can just breeze right by them, as if Paul or Peter or whoever else was writing were just adding them in for variety's sake. But there's a reason that these names are here. These names describe what we believe about Jesus. Christ is the official formal title of the Messiah, the chosen one. The one who was promised to fulfill all of God's promises to rescue his people. So we believe that Christ was the fulfillment of all of God's promises to rescue us. Jesus is the name, the human name of a real human person who was born on a real date in human history, born to the Virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem, and he grew up and lived a perfect life and ended up doing exactly what the angel had foretold when an angel said, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So he's the fulfillment of God's promises. He is the person who would save his people from their sins, and he is Lord. He is the sovereign ruler over all things, including your life and my life. 
receiving Christ Jesus as Lord, believing that he is all of those things, is supposed to be the foundation, not only of how we got saved, but how we live the Christian life. If that's what we believe about him, then Paul is telling us to live in him, to live in the reality of that relationship and all of those amazing truths of who he is to us. He's our foundation. Verse 7 says that we are to be rooted and built up and established in him. That in him is so critical to our being able to live this Christian life. Because if our foundation is anything other than Jesus, we're in trouble. We're a mess. And I've seen this evidence in my own life and the lives of those around me. Um, Question for you. You don't have to raise your hands for this. But think for yourself, how many of you have ever struggled with whether you're actually a Christian? You've struggled with assurance of salvation. Wondered, am I a true follower of Jesus? And perhaps the reason you doubt that is that you look back on your life on things that you've done or maybe things that you didn't do. Maybe you didn't believe sincerely enough or you didn't pray correctly or you didn't get baptized the right way. And it makes you wonder, am I really a Christian? Well, something that you may not know about me is that for several years while I was in college, I spent my summers as a camp counselor. And I would spend my summers counseling up in the state of Michigan at this little Christian camp. And this camp, which had an enormously good influence in my life, also had a really big emphasis on the actual experience of conversion. There was a great emphasis on sort of knowing the date and time that you prayed a specific prayer to become a Christian. And assurance of salvation was very much tied to that experience. But here's what I experienced week after week as a counselor. I would have little 10 and 12-year-olds coming up to me after a fiery evangelistic sermon in a camp service. And they would come up to me terrified and sometimes in tears that they looked back and they were scared that they hadn't prayed the right prayer the year before or they hadn't believed enough when they prayed and they weren't sure whether maybe God was going to send them to hell. And they would ask me, what if I didn't do it right? And time after time, I would reply back to them and I think surprise them by saying, no, you didn't do it right. I didn't do it right, but Jesus did. Jesus always did it right. See, the foundation of our salvation and our Christian life is nothing we have done. It's not the sincerity of our faith. It's not the prayer that we prayed. It's not how we got baptized. It's not anything that depends on me or depends on you. We all probably got all of that wrong in some way or another. But the good news is Jesus didn't. He is exactly what his names describe about him. He fulfilled all of God's promises. He saves his people from their sins. He's in absolute control of everything. Jesus got all of it right, and he is the foundation of our faith. Our salvation rests in its object, Jesus, not the sincerity of our faith. And so Jesus is enough for salvation. Jesus is enough for walking forward and living a life in him that Paul describes in verse 7 as overflowing with gratitude, right? If Jesus has done all of this, if Jesus is our complete foundation and we don't have to do anything to be right with God, then our life should be overflowing with gratitude. That's a life worth living. 
So in Christ, we have our foundation for living the Christian life. Jesus plus nothing equals a life worth living. Now we find in verses 8 through 23, going through the end of the chapter, that not only in Christ do we have a foundation, but in Christ we have our freedom. And the rest of this passage, in one way or another, is all about the freedom that we have in Christ. Now that Paul has established that Christ is our foundation for living the Christian life, he goes on in these verses at the end of chapter 2 to warn of religious additions to that simple Christian faith, to that gospel truth. But in giving this warning, he actually keeps a lot of it really positive. He proclaims great confidence in the freedom that we have in Jesus. And he describes at least four freedoms that we are to enjoy in this Christian life that is founded in and on Jesus. So first, in verses 8 through 10, Paul tells us that in Christ, we have freedom from worldly philosophy. We have freedom from the philosophy of this world. In verse 8, Paul warns us against being taken captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human traditions and the elements, or it could be translated the elemental spirits, of the world. This is one of the first clues that we have of the specific heresy or divisive teaching that was infiltrating this church at Colossae. It seems that there were popular elements of Greek culture and philosophy that were coming into the church. Elements of Greek philosophy that emphasized special knowledge and special experience of the elemental spirit world. The Greeks believed in the spirits of earth and wind and fire, the elements. And it was believed in Greek culture that you needed to experience these spirits through visions, through spiritual experiences. And that popular Greek philosophy had made its way into the church and was starting to get added onto all of the other spiritual truths of Christianity. Additionally, Paul was warning here about human traditions that are being added. There were human traditions that had been added to the Jewish religion that were also being brought into the church, apparently here at Colossae. And all of these things together were forming this really complex cocktail of spiritual and physical requirements that were being placed on believers, and they were told, you can't really live a fulfilling or meaningful life unless you adhere to these extra things. And so this philosophy was being mandated by these false teachers. And Paul warns that such philosophy could take the people of this church captive. It could take them captive by deceiving them into believing that they couldn't be fulfilled. They couldn't enjoy a sense of spiritual fullness without all of this. And that constant search for extra experiences and following traditions that they would never be able to fully live up to, that would eventually enslave them. But by contrast, Paul declares in the next verses that the entire fullness of God's nature doesn't have to be found in these extra experiences. It can all be found in Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God, lacking nothing. And this last verse here, verse 10 in this section says, you have been filled in him. As much as the fullness of God fills Christ, you have been filled by Christ. You don't need any other spiritual fulfillment. You don't need any other philosophy. 
You don't need anything additional or greater spiritual experience beyond Jesus himself indwelling you. So in Christ, we have freedom from every other philosophy of this world. None of it has to bind us. None of it has to control us. We have freedom from worldly philosophy in Christ. Then we find in verses 11 through 14 that in Christ, we have freedom from sin. We have freedom not only from worldly philosophy. In Christ, we have freedom from sin. Verse 11 references the Jewish practice of circumcision. Okay, for thousands of years, there was this ritual of circumcision, cutting off a piece of flesh from male children that had been a symbol among God's people of cutting off sinful flesh, receiving a heart of faith, and being made part of the community of God's people. It was an identifying sign. And it was a sign of being free from sin, free from all of the world, the world's opposition to God, okay? That's what circumcision was intended to convey. But Paul says here in verses 11 and 12 that in Christ, in a sense, we have been spiritually circumcised by being baptized into Christ. Paul is saying that baptism is a a replacement for circumcision. And in Christ, this baptism is better. It replaces circumcision as a practice that's applied not just to the dudes, It's applied to all of God's people. It's applied to men and it's applied to women, all who want to identify as part of the Christian community. And this baptism symbolizes being united to Christ. It says in this passage, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and having our sinful flesh cleansed. The point here isn't that baptism actually accomplishes any of this cleansing. Baptism doesn't give us freedom from sin. It's a picture of the spiritual reality of what God has done for us in Jesus. He died, he was buried, he was raised, and we are united to him in that death, burial, and resurrection, and therefore we are free from the power of sin over us. But we're not only free from that power of sin, we're free from the penalty of sin. Because in verse 14, Paul uses what is one of my favorite pictures in all of the Bible— to describe our forgiveness and freedom from this penalty of sin. And I love this passage. He describes in verse 14 a certificate or a handwritten certificate of debt against us. Now, what is being described here? I want you to think for a moment of every law of God, every command of God that you have ever broken. Every command you violated, every lie every selfishness, every prideful thought, every cruel word, every sinful desire and act and thought, all of them written down in a comprehensive catalog by God. God saw all of it. He knows all of it. He missed none of it. It is all cataloged, and it is all cataloged specifically as a certificate of debt It is literally a death sentence, an indictment by a righteous judge who has seen everything you've ever done and said, this all deserves a penalty of death. Now, it was very common in the Roman world for a death sentence stating the criminal offenses of the condemned to actually be nailed up on top of their cross as they were being executed. That's actually, in a sense, what Pilate did in a mocking way 
when he put a sign over Jesus' head on the cross that said, Jesus, King of the Jews. That was apparently what he was being executed for. But it was common for real, actual offenses to be posted as a certificate of debt over the head of a condemned person who was dying on a cross. But what did God do with this certificate, this death sentence that belonged to you and me? He took your sins and he took this list of my sins that deserved eternal death and he nailed them to an instrument of punishment, not for me, but for Jesus. He nailed them all, it says here, to Jesus' cross. God, the righteous judge, declared his perfect son to be guilty of all of my sins, declared him to be condemned for my sins, and then he poured out all of his wrath and all of his anger that our sins deserved. He poured all of that out on Jesus instead of me. And when Jesus hung on that cross and he declared, it is finished, and he died, all of that guilt and all of those obligations were completely wiped clean from my account and from your account. That certificate of debt was taken away, being nailed to his cross. As Paul wrote to the church at Rome, around the same time that he probably wrote this letter, he wrote to them and said, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ means you have been declared innocent. You have been declared just as righteous as Christ is righteous. And all of your sin, all of its guilt, all of the shame has been wiped clean because Jesus took that on himself. In Christ, we have freedom from sin because of him. Not anything we could ever do, not anything we've ever done, we are free from the guilt and the power of sin in Christ. And then in verse 15, Paul goes on. That's not all that happened when Jesus died. In verse 15, we find that in Christ, we have freedom from spiritual enemies. In this next verse, Paul describes something else that Jesus did when he died and rose again for us. It says in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Simply put, in Christ, we have freedom from our spiritual enemies. Rulers and authorities that we find here in verse 15 is the same word for rulers and authorities that was actually stated earlier in this chapter. And it's two words that are most commonly referring to not earthly rulers and authorities, but to spiritual rulers and authorities the unseen spirit forces of Satan and his demons who are opposed to God, who act as cruel tyrants in this world, making life miserable and deceptive and unfulfilling for this world, trying to drag people into eternal condemnation with them. Those are the rules, rulers and authorities here. And Paul deliberately uses a very common first century imagery in the Roman world to describe exactly what happened when Jesus died and rose again. Roman conquerors, Roman generals back in that day, did not exactly follow Geneva Conventions in dealing with prisoners of war. They were cruel and they were harsh, but they made a point with prisoners of war. What they would do when a Roman general had won a battle, they would take all of their conquered enemies who were prisoners of war, disarm them, strip them, 
and forced them to march through the city that had just been conquered as a sign that the general had won, that there was a conqueror of these forces. And that's what Paul describes here when he says that they were disarmed and disgraced publicly. That was the imagery, that when Jesus died and rose again, when he gave us freedom from sin and new life, he utterly defeated every spiritual authority, including Satan and all of his demons, who would try to harm us or enslave us or destroy us. Jesus is saying when he dies and he rises again that he won. He won the victory. Satan and his demons have no more power or authority over us as believers. In Christ, we have freedom from spiritual authority. And the reason that Paul is pointing this out is because, as you'll find later in verse 18, these teachings that were coming into the Colossian church were telling people that they really needed to be very cognizant of the spirit world and very sensitive to the spirit world, even worshiping angels, that they needed to be in some way submissive to the spirit world to live a fulfilling Christian life. And Paul's saying, no, you don't have to do any of that. Jesus won. The spiritual authorities have been defeated. They have been ashamed. They have been marched through the city streets, and they have no more power over you. Christian, do not feel obligated or ashamed or in fear of the spirit world. Jesus is better and more powerful than all of that. In Christ, we have freedom from spiritual enemies. And then finally, in verses 6 through 16 through 23, the end of the passage, we find that in Christ, we have freedom from legalism. In Christ, we have freedom from legalism. Let's define that term legalism first before we really start digging in here. Legalism takes many forms. And I grew up thinking that legalism was specifically just believing that keeping God's law would get you saved, that it would affect your salvation. And following the commands of God for the purpose of trying to earn salvation is certainly legalistic. And Paul does actually deal with that form of legalism in verse 16. He deals with that in verse 16 when he says that you shouldn't let anyone judge, judge you on how well you're following certain Old Testament and Jewish traditions. He says in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Okay? So there were all these traditions that had been a part of the Old Testament Jewish faith, many of which were given by God to point the people of God to the coming Messiah, to symbolize in some way what would be fulfilled when Jesus would come. But there were teachers in this Colossian church who were saying, no, you need to take all of those Old Testament traditions, all of those very specific practices, those Sabbaths and those festivals and the laws about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat and what you could drink and what you couldn't drink, and you still need to follow those if you want to live the Christian life in a way that honors God and that is fulfilling. And Paul is saying here, no, God gave all of those things not to bind his people, but to point them, the substance is Christ. And Christ has come. Christ has done the work of fulfilling all of those things. And so now that Jesus has come and fulfilled all of those ceremonial laws, 
They aren't necessary for you to practice any longer. You don't have to be legalistically bound by those things and worry about following those things or not following those things. And so that's one form of legalism that Paul says that we are free from in Christ. But there's another far more common and I think very insidious form of legalism that Paul describes in these verses. And that is making man-made rules and traditions necessary for Christian living. Not things that came from God, but extra things that get added onto Christian faith that someone puts other of God's people as being obligated to. And that's what Paul is describing in verse 18 when he says, let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices or self-denying practices and the worship of angels claiming access to a visionary realm. None of that was from God. That was just this mix of currently popular spiritualism being mixed in with self-denying practices, being mixed in with Christianity, and convincing people that they certainly couldn't live a fulfilling life. They might not even be true Christians if they didn't seek these extra spiritual experiences that were mandated by the belief system of their culture. It was human practices being added onto Christianity as obligations for believers. And Paul looks at this, and he throws some serious shade at these people saying that you needed all of these extra spiritual experiences. He calls them inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. These guys were claiming to be spiritual experts, and Paul says, no, they're not even spiritual at all. They're unspiritual. They're inflated with empty notions of their mind. All of this added stuff is worthless. You don't need it. And then further down in verse 20, through the end of the chapter, Paul challenges the church about not recognizing their freedom from this highly restrictive legalism. He asks a rhetorical question here. Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. This one really gets me because I can identify with this kind of legalism. I grew up with a lot of this kind of legalism. All of these regulations beyond what God put in the Bible to avoid certain things, to shun certain behaviors and experiences, not that God had said specifically anything about those things, but extrapolating from what God had said to say, you shouldn't handle this, you shouldn't touch this, you shouldn't taste this, you should deprive yourself of otherwise good things that God has given. All of this was supposed to make you more spiritual, to keep you more separate from the evil world. That was the intention back then. It's still the intention of a lot of that kind of teaching today. But here's what's so ironic. Paul says in verse 20 that following these rules is living as if you still belong to the world. Isn't that ironic? Usually those kinds of teaching are supposed to keep you from being worldly, keep you from living and acting like the world. And Paul's saying, no, if you're making those things obligatory as part of the Christian faith, you're actually acting just like the world who's always trying to earn their own salvation always trying to earn acceptance with God, that is actually worldly thinking and living to follow that kind of legalism. Paul reiterates this irony at the very end of the chapter, saying that following man-made rules has no spiritual value in curbing self-indulgence. Again, it's ironic 
All of these rules are meant to keep you from indulging your sinful flesh, and they don't work. The rules don't work. Legalism doesn't work. It never has, it never will, and we are free from that kind of legalism in Christ. Now, one of the things that I am so thankful for here at Redemption and that I have seen over the last three years is that I don't see a lot of evidence of the more obvious forms of legalism here in this church. And I'm really grateful for that. I know of a lot of other churches, and I've been a part of some of these churches, where that kind of legalism thrives. And you can be removed from church membership. You can literally be declared to be an unbeliever if you are unrepentant about certain man-made restrictions. If you're unrepentant of going to movie theaters or dancing or playing poker or drinking a glass of wine with dinner. Some of you are looking at me like, that sounds crazy. And yeah, that, it, it, it sounds kind of crazy. And we can actually get kind of prideful saying, yeah, I'm so glad that I'm not like those other legalists over there who believe all of that crazy stuff and make all of that obligatory for Christians. I'm glad that I don't struggle with legalism. But let's slow our roll for just a moment. Let's take a step back and remember that what Paul was warning about here in Colossians 2 was popular philosophy and cultural ideology infiltrating the church so that people felt obligated to follow the beliefs of their culture as part of their Christian life. It happened to manifest itself in a lot of restrictive legalism. But the heart of this was allowing cultural beliefs to infiltrate the church and making those things inherent to Christian faith. And I think that that kind of legalism is maybe far more prevalent today and even here in this church than we would want to admit. And I can give you some examples. It happens with culture wars. When Christians go beyond what God has clearly taught and start staking their public testimony, whether it's on social media or in conversations or in relationships, and they stake their public testimony on some position on a culture war, and you hear people saying things like, a real Christian would never blank. And what they describe isn't something that God ever mandated in his law. They're describing something that's a part of a cultural belief system. And then it starts to divide people. It starts to draw lines in the church. This especially happens with politics, where Christians so identify with the political ideologies of the right or of the left, and I just did that backwards, the right or of the left, people so identify with a political ideology that it starts to define their Christianity. And people start looking at Christians and going, to be a Christian, you must have to be this political party. Or to be a Christian, clearly you must have to believe this about what Jesus taught. And politics start to infiltrate our culture as a church. And what happens? What happens is division. And it's very interesting that when the Bible uses the word heresy, the word for heresy in Greek literally means division. Heresy very often isn't just false teaching. It's just some teaching or some belief system that divides God's people and causes division in a body of Christ that is supposed to be united in him. And when culture wars and political ideologies and other aspects of our culture infiltrate the church to such a degree that we start drawing lines be between each other and Christians can't even be friends with someone 
who adheres to some other cultural or political belief than they do, and they get all legalistic about it, that's the same kind of legalism that Paul is talking about here in the church. And what happens is that because of who someone voted for, or their bumper sticker, or their hat, or whatever protest they marched in or didn't march in, that comes to define our relationships in the church instead of our relationship to Jesus and our unity in Jesus. And we're being just as bad in that case as the false teachers who are here in Colossae saying that these things should define and divide you. Things that are part of the culture, things that God never said. And we cut each other off and we can make it sound really good. We can make it sound good by saying that we're setting boundaries, that we're protecting our sense of personal safety, that because of what this person believes about one of these issues, they're not a safe person. And sometimes there is very good purpose to those boundaries and to that sense of safety. But I might argue that more often than not, those things are simply, as Paul calls them here in this passage, human commands and doctrines. They're things that we've made up that make us feel good, make us feel more fulfilled, but they aren't from Christ. They have no value and they only divide us. And a life full of that kind of division and judgment and fear of the other side, don't touch, don't handle, don't taste, that is not a life worth living. That is not a fulfilling life. It's miserable. It's unfulfilling. And so what's the solution? The solution, and I'll close with this, is found in verse 19, where Paul's actually describing the opposite of what should be happening. But in verse 19, Paul says, Hold on to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. The answer to this kind of legalism that would divide us is to hold on harder to Jesus than you're holding on to anything else. Hold on to Christ Hold on to him more than you're willing to hold on to your politics. Hold on to Jesus harder than you're willing to hold on to popular philosophy. Hold on to Jesus harder than you hold on to social beliefs or your own sense of personal safety and comfort. Our spiritual body as a church should not and will not be divided by this kind of legalism or anything else if we are constantly, desperately holding on to Jesus, seeking Jesus, treasuring Jesus. We need nothing and no one else because Jesus is better. He's better than all of it. Christ plus nothing equals a life worth living. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you that you don't hold back in your word. Thank you that you inspired Paul to speak out clearly and boldly against teaching that would add complexity and complication to Christianity that would otherwise enslave us. Thank you that Christ is the answer to all of that. And thank you that in Christ we have a foundation for our Christian life, that in Christ we have freedom for this Christian life, Thank you that we need nothing beyond him for a life that is truly worth living and that brings you glory. Would you impress that on us and change us by that truth today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.